Jesus, uh, you invite us into his kingdom, and uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear tonight and eyes to see the goodness and the power and the sufficiency of your son, uh, that he's beautiful and true, that he stands to welcome sinners like us. Uh, Lord, that uh, you delight in your people. Um, help us to live in that delight, to come to you uh, with empty hands and waiting on your grace to put uh, good things into them. In your name we pray, amen. Oh, what is going on outside? <laughs> um, so this is RUF, and my name is Simon Stokes. I'm the RUF campus minister here. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you before you leave tonight, especially because this is the last RUF of the school semester. And I just want to say, before we begin, uh, that college is a time of transition. Uh, I love that about it, and I hate that about it. Um, I love that when you start off as a freshman, you're coming in and you're essentially, uh, at least the first few weeks of school, basically a high school senior who's got kind of a feel like a summer camp or whatever here at UNC. But when you leave as a senior, you are getting ready to be like a fully-fledged adult in the world. I mean, there's a lot of change that happens in those four years. And it's my privilege, it's the privilege of our, you have to stand here at the crossroads of life with you and to help you think about what does it mean for you to be you and for you to know Jesus, and for you to think about who you're going to listen to and how you're going to listen to them, that's a huge privilege. And so college is a big time of transition. And that's great because we welcome people into that every year, but it's also really sad because we say goodbye to people too. And so I just want to say it has been a huge, huge privilege of mine uh, to be with this senior class the four years they've been here, to walk with them in the few ways that I could, and to care for them. I love them. Uh, they were here when they were, they were their freshman year uh, was the first year that I started off as a campus minister. And so when they graduate, um, I'll be the longest serving person at UNC here. So, <laughs> which I don't know, that's for some of you, that's the dream. For others, it's not. <laughs> I love it. For me, it's the dream. Um, but it's just been an amazing thing to get to walk with y'all and be with y'all. And I love college ministry because of this, and I hate it too. So um, that's my intro for tonight. <laughs> anyway, let's start. Brian Stevenson, a guy who wrote uh, Just Mercy a few years ago, he's an African-American lawyer, uh, worked in my home state of Alabama for many, many years, working with people who are on death row. And he said in his book, Just Mercy, that he would go oftentimes to smaller churches kind of out in the country uh, or really to anybody who would listen to him, especially when he was trying to get started, uh, and talk about what he wanted to do, uh, which was to help people who are on death row get off of death row if he could, um, but to provide justice and mercy in the criminal justice system in our state or my state. And he said that at one point he goes to one of these small churches and during his, t- his talk, he notices that in the very back of the church, there's this older African-American man in a wheelchair. He's clearly, you know, seen some stuff. He's very, very old. And he's just intently staring at Brian Stevenson the entire time that he's giving this talk. Not a lot of emotion or expression, just focused on Brian. And Brian says at the end of his talk, he wraps up, and he's kind of milling around the church, talking to people, uh, kind of, you know, uh, catching up with them or uh, answering some questions they might have. And this older man, he just notices he's kind of waiting for him the whole time. And finally, the place kind of clears out, and Brian is there along with this man, and he wheels himself up to Brian. And he says, do you know what you're doing? And Brian is a 
Harvard-educated lawyer, says, uh, I think so. Like, law is what I'm doing. And the man says, no, no, no. Do you know what you're doing? You are beating the drum for justice. And he says, do you see this scar on the side of my head? I got this in Greene County, Alabama, trying to register to vote. Do you see this over here? I got this in Mississippi demanding civil rights. Do you see this? And he pointed to this dark kind of uh, brown spot at the base of his neck. He says, I got this in Birmingham after the children's crusade. And he looks intently at Brian and he says, people think that these are my scars, my wounds, my bruises. They are not. These are my medals of honor. And he stares at Brian for a moment and he just kind of wheels out the door and just leaves him with that. Just kind of mic drop right there. And Brian said, you know, Brian said he knew that he was doing something important for justice when he was doing this work in Alabama. But he meets this man and he realizes that he is actually connected to this much larger, grander story. It goes like justice, like in undercase to justice, all capitals. That his story and what he's doing is tied to this much larger, more grander, bigger, important thing. And he didn't realize it until that moment. And yet, when it happened, it galvanized him. It helped him understand why he was doing what he was doing. And it showed him how to act in that with courage, with bravery, with compassion. And I tell this story because people like us need to know not just how or what, but we need to know why. Like, why do we do the things that we do? Why care for the poor like Jesus is telling us here? Why do the awkward, hard, but beautiful thing of inviting the lame and the blind and the crippled to your house for a party? I think our problem oftentimes is that we don't understand why. And the reason we don't understand why when we read the Bible is because we don't know that much about God and His kingdom. And when we don't know that, it kills our motivation to care for the poor, to share the gospel with friends who aren't yet Christians, uh, to pray. That when we forget the why of the gospel, the Bible honestly just feels like a rule book. But the Bible is not God's rule book. It's God's history book. And it's God inviting you into your place in that history. And so as we walk through the parables this semester, my hope is that we've seen that they're given not just so that Jesus could tell us first and foremost what to do, but rather given to us to tell us what God is like and who God is, which is our why. So I've got two points to make tonight. Two points to make as we dive into this. One, who are the invited here and who is the host? Who are the invited and who is the host? As we do delve into this, I think we're going to see more of our why. So one, who are the invited? Really, there are three rounds of invitees here. There's the people who are expected but who make excuses and don't come. There's the disabled who knew, nobody thought would be there. And then there's everybody else. And so let's start by looking at these in turn. First of all, the expected. Jesus says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Imagine making, I know it's the lamest of all the excuses. (laughs) Imagine making a super nice meal for your friends. And spending a lot of time and effort and money on this meal and inviting them over to their house to eat with you. And when the food is ready and everyone is sitting down to eat, all of them offer excuses and head for the door. 
Like one says, you know, I've got a midterm starting right now. Uh, I've got to go to work uh, now. And you're standing there at kind of jilted by all the, your friends with all this good food, but no one to share it with. Like, how would you feel? Like, that's pretty close to what's happening here. Buying a field before you inspect it is as silly and improbable as if you or I were to buy a house and have never walked through the door. It just doesn't happen. Buying a team of oxen and never testing them is like buying a car, sight unseen. The third guest, as you might have guessed, is the most outrageous. He's essentially saying, don't expect me at your banquet. At the last minute, I've decided to get married and I can't come to your party because we'll be too busy consummating. Like, that's literally, like, that's the polite way of saying what he's saying there. These apologies are just simply veiled insults to the host of this party. If only one guest, though, were to back out of the banquet, you know, maybe that'd be understandable. But everyone is colluded together, it seems like, to get out. And as you read this parable, you can't help but wonder, is Jesus processing his experience of ministry in this story? I mean, look at the last line here. Jesus looks and he says, For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. It's hard to render this in English, but the you that Jesus uses there is plural. It's not singular. So he's essentially saying, uh, you know, I tell y'all, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Think about that. He's telling this story and he's speaking as the master of the house to the servant. And yet suddenly he switches this plural you. And it's like if you've ever watched a movie and the people on screen are having this conversation with one another and then suddenly one of the characters turns to the camera and just breaks what's called the fourth plane and starts to talk to you. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this story. He's telling this story, and when he gets to the end of it, he's speaking as the host of the banquet to his servant, to the people that are there. And what he's saying is that this banquet is his banquet. That all is ready because of what's taking place through him and his ministry. And as he's been out and about in Israel, he's encountered refusals by the people that should have most been on board with what he's doing. And he's been accepted by the people that you you would think of as the social outcast. I mean, just look at the next two rounds of people. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you command is done, and still there's room. And the master says to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Look, these are the common people. These are the people that you would see begging on the street because they can't work. These are people that in the thinking of many of the major religious leaders of the day would definitely not be at the wedding banquet at the end of time seated with God. Because who did they think would be there? Healthy people? Beautiful people? Without outward or inward blemish? Who actually makes it to this feast? Crippled people? Messed up people? Lame people? Not respectable? Extraordinary people? And as Jesus tells this story, like many of his stories, these physical realities point to spiritual conditions. So think about what this says to people like us. That the feast of God's kingdom is open to anyone who would have it. But the people who think that they don't need it, who have better things to do, or who give bad excuses, they actually keep themselves out. But people who, spiritually speaking, recognize that they are crippled and blind, they are the ones who actually show up. Because people who think that they're healthy and rich, you know, those people can take a feast, they can leave a feast. People, though, who know that they are unhealthy and poor, 
when offered an invitation to come and eat at a very nice meal, will run to that invitation. They know there are no other invitations like this coming to them. That this is their shot. And this just begs the question, what kind of excuses do we make to not follow Jesus? Or not to come with Him? Because there's a way in which we can show up at places like this one and kind of along the way in our life be checking the fitness box or the social box and then think, well, I kind of need to check the religion box, so check, here's the Jesus box. But Jesus isn't saying check a box. He's saying come to a party. Look, y'all, we are busy people with full schedules. We feel it, especially here at the end. But there is nothing more important to our schedule than coming to Jesus and partaking in his kingdom. Even if the excuses that are offered here are bad, they at least still touch on some of the things that are near to our heart. Property, work, family, those are good things. But because they are so good, they can be the greatest rivals to God's kingdom in our heart. And the reason these people don't make it to the feast was not because they were bad or unworthy. It's that they were too busy. They went back to their work and their lives and the other things that captured their attention. And so they were left outside of the feast. And I know that to modern people like us, the idea of Jesus excluding people can kind of make us squirm. But when you look at things like this, he's only as exclusive as you'll let him be. That when you look in the Gospels, people are possessed by demons and prostitutes and tax collectors who've betrayed their people. They come into the feast of God's kingdom and follow Jesus. But the most respectable religious people and the governors and the wealthy, they stay out. And the division between the two is not race or class or who's done bad things and who is not. It is their willingness to heed Jesus and respond to his invitation. That Jesus will take anyone that will have him, but the only way to have him is to listen to him. I know that for some of us, there's like this lurking suspicion in our minds that God is kind of unfairly excluding people from heaven and kind of arbitrarily keeping them out. And this parable, if you look at it, she just slay that prejudice. This host excludes no one. It's the invited who refuse the invitation, and so they exclude themselves. And they're excluded not because they're wicked or sinful or bad. These are good and respectable people. But they're excluded because of their excuses. Their absence is contrary to the will of the host and only to the fact that they have other higher priorities. And the warning here is that a place like UNC, it's not ignorance of the gospel that ruins many people. I mean, lots of people grew up around this stuff. They're not everyone. But what ruins people is a lack of the desire to actually respond to the gospel. The desire to be thought well of by all, to be maybe forward-thinking or modern instead of old-fashioned or religious. The desire to get as many things done as possible, to be someone who appears busy and therefore significant. But make no mistake, outright evil has slain its thousands. Sin is real, destroys people. But weak excuses that put off a response of following Jesus and listening to his invitation, those have slain their tens of thousands. Do you think your schedule and your personal goals are too important to squeeze Jesus in? Or do you build in your goals and your schedule around Jesus? Look, God is not trying to wreck your life and keep you from getting to grad school. God is inviting you to real life, 
into a true enjoyment of what He made you for. He's saying, come to a feast and bring nothing but how hungry you are. I mean, a story like this just begs the question of what does it actually mean to grow as a Christian? Or to be, or to be a Christian? I mean, looking at what someone said, what Jesus says here, people who get this are actually people who show up at the feast. They're people who know they're spiritually hungry and thirsty, who are spiritually wounded or crippled. They're someone who would not be expected to be invited to this kind of feast, and they're blown away by the unexpected invitation. Like People who get this are wowed by it. What if this right here is what it meant for you to grow as a Christian, though? Not that you would ever stop being a spiritually crippled person, but that you'd be someone who fell more and more in love with the grace of the host of heaven. What if God's will for your life was not, first and foremost, that you become this kind of super missionary, the missions are important and good, but that you'd become someone who would come to Him and just routinely feast on His love and enjoy His enjoyment of you and enjoy Him for who He is. That you would live with this posture towards God that says, you know, you have loved me and forgiven me and poured into my lap something that I would never in a million years have thought that I would have. And that I could never have gotten for myself. Yet here it is. Thank you. What if that was your posture? The reformer Martin Luther once said that we are all beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Did you know that is exactly what RUF is? That this is a room full of spiritual beggars helping people at UNC to taste and see where we got bread. And how good and sweet that bread is. That each week in our community groups and our large groups and getting together to talk about our lives, that we are feasting on the love of God in Jesus. And we're heading together towards this greater banquet at the end of time. So if that's who's invited, who is the host? Who's the host here? Glancing through the story, this host is someone who is as rich as he is gracious. I mean, he's feeding like a whole country and he's super nice about it. How do I see that? Just look at the response of the host to the embarrassment and scorn that he receives. So the servant came and reported these things to his master that no one was showing up to his party. And then the master of the house became angry. So he's angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Okay, the people that have invited, I've invited have embarrassed me publicly. Okay, invite anyone that will come. That is the gospel. At the heart of the gospel is this transformation of divine anger into love. Those would be totally fair to declare, you know, I'm going to take revenge on these people and try to get justice for myself. This has cost me a lot. This has embarrassed me. Instead, he does something totally different. He takes his anger and he turns it into grace. And he invites all these people that he has no relation to to this amazing party. This host experiences public shame and suffering, and costly love given to people who can never return the favor, that he makes a feast for anyone that wants to feast, regardless of their condition. You know, naturally all of us are spiritually starving, empty, helpless, ready to perish. But the good news of the gospel contains a full supply of everything that people like us need in order to be saved and to flourish forgiveness of sin and peace with God, a full pardon for all the guilt that we carry around with us, the grace to live and what Jesus has done for us, 
and the end to live in the glory of God. We will wipe away your tears with His very hand and feed you good food and rich drink. Now, in Jesus' work on the cross, God has prepared for all the wants of our souls. That there is nothing that heavy, sin-laden people like us could wish or weary consciences require, which is not spread before us in the rich, rich abundance of Jesus. That Jesus, in one word, is not only the host of this banquet, but He is the sum and the substance of the great supper that He offers. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes in me shall never thirst. In His person, in His work, everything that we could ever ask or want to be full and satisfied is there. Everything you need to stand before God is in Jesus. Everything you need to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am clean and I am beloved is in Jesus. Everything you need to stand in front of other people, your parents and your friends and people you want to impress, and know that I am bulletproof from whatever you say or do to me is in Jesus. And He wants you to have these things. He's urgent for it. You and I, our poverty, our wounds, our sin, our sadness, those are the reasons that Jesus left heaven and came to earth as a person. We are the reason that He left comfort and took suffering and left honor and took shame. That all of His work in our lives is this invitation, pressing His love into our clenched fist and saying, come, take and eat, feast with me. I will give you wine and bread at no cost to you and at every cost to myself. And Christians should be people who are marked by joy and good parties and deep friendships and welcoming outsiders and outcasts because that is what the king and the kingdom that we belong to is marked by. You and I can carry around this sense of guilt of all the messed up things in the world. Or the sense of weight of all the people in your life you know, who are hurting and you can't do anything about it. Or who don't know Jesus and you don't have any control over that. And we can be haunted by this attitude that gets phrased as something like, you, know, you can lift the weight of caring by doing. That's this weight of people or things in your life that you care about and it's weighing down on you. And if you just cared more, you could do more. And it's all on you. But do you know what the problem with that is? That if that is the message, then our service toward others will always be driven by a weight of guilt. That service for you and love for you will be exhausting. It will be joyless. It will make you hard and make you feel like a warrior. But you will never feel like a son or a daughter. It will wear you down over time and rob you of life and joy. The whole premise of that message of lifting the weight of caring by doing is to do this thing to get your guilt off your back. It's deeply selfish. Using others by helping them will not help them in the long run. And it will not solve your guilt problem. Instead of a feast inside of you, there will be a famine. But if the gospel is really good news, then it's telling you a different story. That doesn't call you to just quit. doesn't call you to give up. But it changes the motivation for that command. It is not don't care and don't do anything. But it is you are finally free to care and to do without the weight of your guilt or the weight of looking for your meaning or putting your value on the line because all those things have been resolved for you in Jesus. 
that you are inviting people to a banquet that God himself has prepared. A banquet that is both present and future. That when you pray for someone, that when you sit down and share a meal with someone, when you invite someone to RUF or to church, you are inviting them to a very small foretaste of the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And my hope for all of you when you graduate as seniors is that this would have been a place that has felt like a small taste of heaven. And that these are people that you would want to feast with forever. And that you would carry that with you for the rest of your life. That that is what this place is about. Getting some small taste of the wine and the bread of Jesus. And sharing that with other beggars. And saying, isn't he good? Isn't he good? Let's do this together forever. Just look at the words of the host of the servants who are doing the inviting. Compel them to come in. Because it would be the most natural thing in the world for one of these people to say, you know what, I'm a beggar dressed in rags. I am poor. He's rich. I'm ugly and lame. He's beautiful and whole. Why would this wealthy, important guy want me at this table? And the host of this table, Jesus, is saying, convince them that this is a real offer. Because everyone deep down has this sense that I'm going to have to clean up and get my junk together. But then you hit the hard reality that your sin is not the stuff that you do. It's a natural bent of your heart. And you don't have the power to unbend that driving force in your life. That only God has that power. But deep down, everyone's afraid that God will not like them or want to be with them. That we are too messy or too much or too ugly or too angry or too proud. I mean, take the sin that always runs right into your mind first. When you're praying by yourself in your car or walking to class or waking up the next day. Like, God, I'm not going to do that anymore. I am so serious. Not anymore. And then you do it. What is the answer to that sin? Is the answer to sin to just stop sinning? The answer to sin is to turn to God. Compel them that if they will come, I will make them whole. And I will set a feast for them. And I will love them and cleanse them and welcome them. And I will party with them for forever. Compel them with that. That that is the gospel. And that is what we offer day in and day out. And so I'll end with this. In June of 1990, the Boston Globe ran an account of a really unusual wedding banquet. A woman who was accompanied by her fiancé went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston. And they sit down and they both have very expensive taste. And they make selections of silver and china and plan just a massive wedding reception that the Hyatt is going to host for them after they say, I do, at the altar. And when they left, uh, she puts down down, half the down payment, or the half of the down payment, the $13,000 that's required for this banquet. But, as sometimes happens... The day of the wedding got closer and closer and the groom got cold feet and he pulls out of the wedding. He breaks the engagement. His fiancée obviously is angry and she's hurt. And when she goes to the Hyatt, she finds out that the down payment that she put down is completely non-refundable. And so she can either lose that half of the money and cancel or she can go ahead and pay the rest and throw the banquet even though she wasn't getting married. And it sounds crazy, but this no longer bride-to-be thinks about it and she decides to go ahead and pay and have the party. Not the wedding, just the blowout party that would have happened after the wedding. 
Because 10 years before this, this woman had been living in a homeless shelter. And she got back on her feet. She found a good job. She set aside some savings. And now she takes that savings. And she decides that she's going to take the savings that she was going to spend on her wedding reception. And she's going to throw a party for the homeless people of Boston. So she sends invites to all the downtown rescue missions and the homeless shelters. And in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted the craziest party you've ever been to. That for that one night only, bag ladies and addicts and vagrants who are used to eating old pizza out of dumpsters were served hors d'oeuvres by waiters in tuxedos. And they dined on chicken cordon bleu. They ate chocolate and they sipped champagne out of crystal glasses and they danced. Every different kind of person coming together and enjoying a feast that they could never pay for, but which is rich and good beyond their wildest dreams. Do you know what that is? It's a picture of God's kingdom. Beloved, Jesus says, Come, for everything is now ready. If you are weary, come, and I will give you rest. Come, I am water for the thirsty. I am bread for the hungry. I am life for the dead. Come, and you can buy wine and milk without money and without price. That all you need is your need. Come and put down all of your doing, which makes you busier and busier and can make you feel justified for a little while will ultimately leave you empty that I will be wine for your song I will be the way that you walk through life that there is more love in God than there is sin in you beloved the father is ready to receive you the son is ready to cleanse you the spirit is ready to come and dwell with you and cause you to flourish and to give you rest and satisfaction for your souls so come And taste and enjoy the sweetness and the goodness of God and his kingdom. That is why we do what we do. That's why we love as we love. And we hope as we hope. As always, that's my invitation to you. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to give us good gifts. And to give us the gift of Jesus. To love us. To bathe us in his love. To welcome us to you and to yourself. Lord, help us to believe that tonight. Lord, bind up the wounded. Bring to life the dead. Lord, fill the hungry. Be rest for the weary. Lord, help us to know you, to rest in you, to love one another. Lord, to care for one another because we see your love and your care for us. Help us to celebrate your love now and forever together. In your name we pray. Amen.